Today is Pentecost Sunday. When I sat down some time ago to lay out the schedule for preaching through Acts, I didn't intend this. I think it was God's doing that we would be actually teaching on Pentecost today. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. I invite you to turn there with me. We're going to start with the first 13 verses today. Next week we'll get into the rest of the chapter, which is the sermon that was preached that resulted in the coming of faith of 3,000 people. Powerful beginning of the church. But today we're going to look at the coming of the Holy Spirit. Beginning of verse 1, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites? Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them said they've had too much to drink. This is the word of God. Other than the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, there's probably no more important story in all of scripture for the church than what we're studying today. And like the people that first witnessed it, you might hear the story and have one of two different responses. You might be, as that last group we saw, dismissive of it. Seems silly, we're more modern thinkers than that. Maybe they were just drunk. That's a safe place from which to look at something like this, because then you don't have to wrestle with the implications of it, if in fact it means something that is important for humanity. It's easy to be dismissive, but it's certainly not transformational. My hope is you will be like the other group. They were the seekers. They couldn't deny something was happening that was new and powerful, and they simply asked this question, what does this mean? And that's the question we're gonna try to answer today. What does this mean? If you pull out your notes, we're gonna look at four pieces to this. The first is, subtitle, the significance of the day of this event, the day of Pentecost, Second was the location of the event. They were all together in one place. Third, the nature of the event, what it means that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, what that signifies. 
And then finally, the validation of the event based on the three signs, wind, fire, and languages. So that's where we're going. Let's look first at when the day of Pentecost had come. Many Christians think of Pentecost as simply what happened on this day, when the Holy Spirit came. But Pentecost was an event that already existed And the fact that the Holy Spirit comes in the church's birth on the day of Pentecost is very important. This was one of three major celebrations of the Jewish people being practiced since God gave the law uh, back at Mount Sinai. The Feast of Weeks is what it's called. And it was celebrated 50 days after Passover, which is about the time that the wheat harvest had come in. Actually, seven weeks, and then the Greek word Pentecost for 50. And it was designed to celebrate the bringing in of the harvest. Um, It was the day of first fruits when they would bring two loaves of bread that were made out of that first grain, out of that new grain, and they were brought as an offering. We're rejoicing in the provision of God. We're celebrating it. You might think of Pentecost as the thanksgiving for the Jewish people. So it was the Feast of Weeks, it was the Day of First Fruits, but by the time Jesus came, this day had also been associated with the Mount Sinai experience and the giving of the law. So besides commemorating the harvest, they also commemorated their time in the Old Testament. Now remember, we're doing a study right through the whole Bible, so you will remember And if you weren't here for it, you can go back and find on the internet a sermon about the Mount Sinai experience when God came down and met with his people. And so that was an important part by this time for the Jewish people to commemorate that because the timing is very similar. Scholars in Jesus' day and age believe that it was roughly seven weeks from the time of the very first Passover in Egypt when the lamb was sacrificed and the blood of the lamb over the doorposts so that as the angel of death judged Egypt, they passed over those homes where the blood of the lamb had been spilt and had been spread. And it was roughly the same period of time Uh, as the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks, when they came to Mount Sinai and God came down. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is because we have learned that everything in the Old Testament was a setup for Christ. It was all about Christ. We recognize that the Passover was a foreshadowing of the true Lamb of God who would come, who would be sacrificed for not the sins of a household, And not just for one year or a season, but for the sins of the whole world. And it was no mistake that when Christ hung on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, taking on our sin, it happened at Passover. And so now we have another coming of God to be with his people. When? Seven weeks after the true great Passover of the great Lamb of God, God comes in a fresh and new and powerful way. If you miss that, you miss one of the most important parts of the story because what you recognize is that this, like everything, was always part of the plan and God had set in motion certain practices and metaphors in the old covenant under the law that were designed to point the way so that people could look and say, see, Our sovereign God had this in mind. It came suddenly for those who experienced it, but not in the heart. 
in the mind, in the vision of God, who saw this from eternity past. And what made this also important wasn't just the spiritual significance of Pentecost, but the fact that it was one of the three pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, when all God-fearing Jews were required to come to Jerusalem. And that's why we read of all these people. This is only one time out of three times of the year that Jerusalem is packed with people from all over the world. Picture these people that have come. The pilgrimage festivals were joyful times. They had their songs of ascent out of the Psalms that they sang as they climbed to the holy mountain, coming from all nations, speaking all sorts of languages. They came to God's holy mountain. There was a lot of joy. There was a lot of hubbub. The businesses, it was Black Friday for them in Jerusalem. The inns were full. They were busy making arrangements for the worship activities. A lot of joy, a lot of celebration and anticipation in the city. All of this important to set the stage. This event takes place, we will learn if we read a little farther on, at about nine o'clock in the morning. That time on the day of Pentecost was critical because it was the hour of the most important ceremony at the temple. And all of Jerusalem would have been gathered around the temple for this moment. And that leads us to the second thing for us to understand, where this took place, the location of the event. It says that they were all together in one place. If you look at the uh, paintings of Pentecost and you hear the stories, the presumption is that the coming of the Holy Spirit occurred in the upper room. We often picture that. But it is more likely, given what we understand about Pentecost, that this did not take place in the upper room but actually happened in the temple. Let me give some reasoning for that. If you go into Acts 1, these first two chapters do not occur as a single event. At verse 12, we see them returning from Jesus' departure. They go back into the upper room, most likely the upper room that had become Jesus' headquarters in Jerusalem where he celebrated the Passover with them. That's where this group of people that includes the 11 disciples, the significant women who were followers of Jesus, including the mother of Jesus and the brothers and sisters of Jesus, that's where they were staying during this period. Remember, Jesus was on earth for 40 days and then he left. This happens roughly 10 days after Jesus' departure. 50 days, seven weeks, Feast of Pentecost. So that is where they are headquartered. But then there's an event break at verse 15. In those days, Peter stands up among them all, and we don't really know where that takes place. Let me take you to a very important verse that helps us understand this. The end of Luke's gospel. And remember, Luke uh, is writing Acts as a sequel to his gospel, which means that the events in Acts 1 pick up where the Gospel of Luke ends. Here's what we see at the end of uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, beginning at verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They stayed continually at the temple, praising God. So Luke has said what they did was spend every day in the temple court. So what was really happening was that this 
close-knit group of people were using the upper room as a place to stay. Probably was not large enough to have 120 people there. And that 120 was the first group of followers of Jesus who would meet regularly at the temple because that's what you did if you were a a faithful, God-fearing Jew. And in this case, they now simply acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. So coming to the temple was that much more important and meaningful to them. When Luke tells us that the whole house was filled with the sound of great wind, that term house is used for the house of God. It happens at nine o'clock in the morning. Every God-fearing Jew on the day of Pentecost would be at the temple courts. So that would explain why they had this immediate audience that when they heard everything came running to them because of what they heard. The sound of wind filled the whole temple, you see? And then one final piece helps us understand this took place in the temple. What we'll study next week, at the end of Peter's first sermon, 3,000 people believed and were baptized. The only place that many people could have been baptized was around the Temple Mountain where all of the mikvah ceremonial washing basins were in the city of Jerusalem. So that's where this took place. The nations were gathered. The instructions at Mount Sinai were given that there would be a tabernacle where God would come and dwell among his people. And all God-fearing Jews from every tribe and tongue across the world had gathered to commemorate this. And among them were 120 people who were faithfully waiting for the next thing that Jesus told them would happen. John baptized you with water but you're gonna be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Go and wait. So the scene is set. Let me just point out one more thing about this setting. What is one of the very last events that Luke tells us happened at the temple? Anybody remember? The veil was torn from the top to the bottom when Christ finished his work on the cross and cried it is finished and gave up his spirit. God reached out of heaven and made access to a place that had been forbidden to most, in fact, all of Israel except the high priest in just once a year. That was the last thing Luke records happened in that temple. Imagine that. Imagine being the priest in the outer holy place when that took place. All the stories that they knew about how fearful it was to go back into that place because that's where God was. You don't go into the presence of God. We've talked about all the traditions about how fearful it was for the high priest to go back, that he would wear bells around the bottom of his garment. This is what tradition tells us, so that when he went and silently did his work, they would know he was not found unworthy and not struck dead to be in the presence of a holy God because they could hear the bells. Tradition also tells us that they wore a rope around their ankle and left the gathered portion on the safe side of the veil so that if, in fact, the bells stopped ringing, the other priests could pull them out of the Holy of Holies so that there wouldn't be this increasing body count year in and year out. It was that place that was to be feared and yet cherished because it was the place where God himself was thought to dwell, that God tore from top to bottom. Why did he do that? We know why he did it. Because he wanted to show them it was empty. That God wasn't there anymore. That God hadn't been there in a long time. That it was just symbol. 
by the time God took on human form in the person of Jesus Christ and tabernacled for a while among us. When Jesus was on earth, the Holy of Holies was where he was. And now when he finished, when he made it possible for you and I, because we have been sprinkled clean with the blood of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, for us to enter the Holy of Holies, even the symbol itself became irrelevant. And so God tears it open. Could you imagine what might have been the mind of some of those priests thinking, I I, I didn't think I'd even survive. But I looked inside and, and it was just dead. There was no cloud of smoke. There was no Shekinah glory. It's just a normal space with a really nice piece of furniture in there. Imagine that that was in some of their minds. And then this next scene that we see at the temple is the coming of God in a fresh and profound and new way. Now let's look at the coming itself. All of them were filled with the Spirit, verse two tells us, and it it came very suddenly and without warning. Now, this is phase one of a four-part coming of the Spirit that will take place throughout the book of Acts. So today, let me just quickly let you know, first, what this was not. What this is not intended to be. It is not a pattern or a ministry model that we are supposed to take and reproduce. It's not a ministry model. It's a story. It's an event. Remember last week when we talked about how we interpret Scripture. We don't take explicit doctrine out of storyline. Doctrine is implied in the narrative. It is explicit in the clear teaching. When you go through the epistles and you see how the church functioned, this coming of the Holy Spirit is never referred back to as something that becomes a model that is to be sought and repeated. Like, for instance, Paul does when he recounts the upper room when the Lord gave the Lord's table. He recounts exactly what Jesus did because Jesus was clear. What I'm doing here, I want you to do. You see, so this is not presented as something that we need to do and experience exactly what's happening here. That's not the intent. Now, I don't mean to be insinuating any particular theology about the work and manifestations of the Holy Spirit. What I really want to do is just honor Scripture by telling you what this is about. And here's what this is. This is an inaugural event. And like every time where God does a new thing, where he's bringing new revelation, new truth. We have watched this throughout the Old Testament that the vast majority of people that worshiped faithfully God and were rewarded by that faith, an eternal reward and God's blessing in their life, lived a life that did not experience the supernatural because the supernatural in the old way of doing things came when there was new revelation. It was always accompanied by the miraculous in a way to affirm that God was in this new truth. They needed to listen, they needed to learn. This is an inaugural event. What is it that is being inaugurated? What's the new thing God's doing? It's the birth of the church that Jesus said he was going to build. But the second event that's related to it is this coming of the Holy Spirit in a way that God had never up until this point interacted with the people. Now, all that said, let me be clear that the coming of the Holy Spirit changes the way the people of God interact with God from this moment forward. And indeed, our life is meant to be marked by 
the supernatural from this moment on. So I wanna be very clear about that. But what that looks like is fleshed out as we go forward in the book of Acts because that's not the purpose for the signs that happen here. The signs and wonders affirm this inaugural and new event. The only other place in scripture other than where Jesus himself in Acts 1 says, you're gonna be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The only other place that's mentioned is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Bring it up on the screen. Let's say this together. Paul says, good and loud, the body is a unit, though, many parts, they form one body. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. The baptism of the Holy Spirit now becomes a norm for every follower of Christ. The 3,000 people that come to faith and were mikvahed, baptized in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus, Hamashiach, there's no evidence that what occurred for them was the same as what occurs here. But according to what Paul says, what happens when you and I come to faith in Christ is a supernatural exchange whereby the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life, baptizes us by his presence into this body. You see, so that becomes a norm for all of us. The signs of Acts 2 validate that reality. Let's look at those signs. Three signs, wind, fire, and languages. What did the great wind that was heard through the whole temple, practically it got people's attention, right? seemed like a great violent wind that filled the whole temple. They knew something was up, got their attention. But wind in scripture is synonymous for the coming, for the presence, the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in both Greek and Hebrew, wind and spirit are the same. John chapter three where Jesus says the famous words to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Not only born of water, but born of the spirit. What he's saying literally is born of water and wind. When he said wind, he was referring to the Holy Spirit. So the wind signifies the coming suddenly and overwhelmingly of the Holy Spirit. What is the fire for? What does fire represent? Fire represents throughout scripture Two things, the presence of God and the consecration of the space where God has made his presence known. Think about Moses in the burning bush. God's presence, and what does he say to Moses as he draws near? Take off your shoes, why? Because the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Where did the Shekinah glory, which was the pillar of smoke and fire that led the nation of Israel, where did it dwell when the tabernacle was put up? in the Holy of Holies, that place that was set apart for God. The fire represents the presence of God and the consecration of the space where God's presence is manifested. Now, this is why this is so beautiful that it happened on Pentecost. Remember, by this time, Pentecost commemorated Sinai. What did the whole nation of Israel experience at Sinai? When God came down, what were some of the manifestations that occurred? There was mighty, violent wind, so strong it made the sound like trumpets. It was terrifying, but it signified that God was showing up. And what did they see at the top of the mountain? They saw fire and smoke. Do you see what's happening here? 
If you read the text, it says they saw what appeared to be tongues of fire, and then it says they divided and rested on all of those who were followers of Jesus. I love that. When God came to the whole nation of Israel, he came to them as a whole. The Shekinah glory was a single manifestation of the presence of God. And what I see happening here is what at first may have appeared familiar to them, at least by legend, the coming of fire and wind, but then that Shekinah glory did something that had never happened before, could not have been conceived by the Jewish mind. That single presence of the Shekinah glory parted, and instead of going into the Holy of Holies, where in their thinking it should have been, it went and it set itself on every one of those who had professed Jesus as the Messiah. Do you get the imagery here? Book of Revelation, the dwelling place of God is now among men. Paul, 1 Corinthians, you are now the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. The coming of fire resting on all of the believers tells us that you and I are the dwelling place of God, that he comes to dwell in us, but not just his presence, but he has consecrated and set us apart as the place where he dwells. And we now live for his purposes. We've been set aside. We've been consecrated. We are a holy place because God now dwells in us. I think I'm going to stop there. We'll attach the whole languages thing next week because that merits a fair amount of discussion. But I think that's pretty powerful, isn't it? Listen to me. Followers of Jesus is not just an intellectual practice. It's not just full of traditions and habits that we've created for ourselves. Our own festivals, whether they're weekly gatherings or seasonal gatherings, and our set of teaching and cherished doctrine, that was the Mount Sinai experience. You and I, every place you go is a place of worship. Everything you do is an act of worship. You are a being set apart for one thing to be the dwelling place of God for his purposes. How would that transform you if you began to think and act and live and cherish yourself and God's call in your life? Wouldn't that alone turn us into a movement of God? Let's pray. Father, you came and you dwelled in us. We have this very Holy Spirit in our lives today, and yet we would confess, so many of us, that he's a stranger to us. The very thought of becoming familiar with your presence in us in this way scares some of us to death, and yet it is the true path for which you redeemed us, that we are, in fact, what you always intended, not a room set apart for you to dwell in the midst of a sinful people, but a heart that has been created for your presence, sanctified by the work of Jesus, and now empowered to be part of this great movement of bringing that message, that that presence, that transforming work to other lives. Father, invigorate us, inspire us with that. In Jesus' name, amen.